Good afternoon and welcome to the Sitka Nature Show. This is your host, Matt. I want to thank you for joining me here in the second weekend of September 2021. We're just a little more than a week away from fall equinox and our days are losing almost five minutes of daylight each day. We are now seeing a sunset happening a little after 7 p.m. I'm definitely noticing the darker evenings. It is a good time of year to get out and see what might be going on out there. Lots of birds moving through, shorebirds still, not so many of those. We're into the songbird migration, southbound migrants. The sparrows seem to be a later peak. I think the warblers peaked a little earlier, but there's still plenty of them have been around. Uh, But this peak of sparrow migration was pretty epic this past week here in Sitka on Tuesday. I saw more sparrows than I have ever seen. Uh, all around the airport, just a high density, hundreds of them easily, mostly golden crown sparrows, but also some fox sparrows and a a few others scattered in. But by far, the majority of them were golden crown sparrows. I'm guessing probably well over a thousand and maybe even thousands in the area and plus more in other places around town, just not quite in high as high a density. I'm not sure what's going on to cause them to show up in quite those large numbers. I've certainly seen uh, large groups of sparrows show up before, you know, where they all of a sudden seem to show up and there's a lot of them around, but never quite as many as I saw this past week. By the next day, many of them had moved on, although there were still elevated numbers of sparrows as they were uh, kind of making their way south and pausing here for a break. Uh, Another exciting bird was a gray catbird that was found earlier this week by Brian Doyle and his family. It was great to get notified of that and get a chance to see it. It moved neighborhoods after the first day, and then just yesterday we found that there was a second catbird with it. So very unusual, only the third sighting for Sitka. I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. The conversation I have for this week's show is one I recorded with Brian Buma. He's an assistant professor of quantitative biology at the University of Colorado, Denver, formerly at the University of Alaska, Southeast Juneau. He was in Sitka this past August. We'll go ahead and join the conversation with him talking a little bit about the work that he's been doing here in Southeast Alaska. I started studying landslides, I think, in 2013 or something out of Juneau, um, looking at the ways in which like yellow cedar decline and windstorms interacted with landslides. And so I had been publishing on that and working on that and trying to figure out which of those two things might increase the likelihood of landslides, essentially, um, before the the 2015 event that caused the slides in Sitka. Mm -hmm. And so it's been an interest ever since. Did you find any relationship with the cedar decline and landslides? Not with cedar decline, no. We thought there might be because everything dies, and when you lose yeah. you, know, you lose the the mature trees, you lose a lot of root reinforcement. So we thought maybe there might be something there. Um, there isn't, or we couldn't find anything um, significant at all. And we think that's probably for two reasons. One, you know, in yellow cedar decline, not everything dies. It's just the cedar. And so it's not super common that you have a thick, big stand of yellow cedar that all dies at once. Usually there's some spruce or hemlock mixed in there. So it's not like everything goes at once, like in a clear cut. And then most of the mortality associated with snow loss in yellow cedar is on flatter slopes anyway. So it's typically not in an area where you'd see a landslide initiate. Mm. Yeah, and I guess, you know, where I've mostly noticed the yellow cedar decline, I wonder if the soils are even that thick there. I don't know. It seems like it's often wet there, but maybe that could still be thick soils that would be prone to sliding if it were steep enough. Sure, yeah. In southeast, they definitely are typically on wetter soils, often fairly thick wet soils like muskegs, Mm -hmm. muskeg edges. And so the soil's, you know, thick for sure in a lot of these places. 
but the slope just isn't there. And yeah. so it's that it's that shallow slope that allows water to collect, uh, raise the water table, meaning yellow cedar can be pretty competitive, but it also means the roots are pretty shallow. So when it freezes, they're a bit more um, you know susceptible to freezing uh, because those roots are all kind of concentrated near the surface to get out of the water. And that's not necessarily true in BC. Actually, in, in British Columbia, the yellow cedar decline, um, they have a is mostly a high elevation where they're losing snow because it's obviously warmer than here, uh, down at sea level, like Sitka. And up there, they have pretty shallow soils over bedrock. And so they are dying on steeper slopes. The hypothesis is it's the same thing. Um, it seems to be the same pattern. But the roots are shallow, not because of water table, but because it is shallow soils. That being said, that's just a hypothesis at this point. You know, we haven't gone out and, and been able to test that experimentally yet. Yeah. I Well, you know, around here lately, and you, you probably noticed that we're having this, di- uh, it's not a die-off outbreak of um, this black, line. yeah, the, well, this year worm. it's the budworm. And the budworm yeah. this year and yeah. a couple years ago. A couple years ago. The, yeah. And so sometimes I was talking to the Forest Service entomologist recently who kind of looks at that, and she was mentioning these periodic outbreaks mm-hmm. over decade sort of scales. And then as you mentioned the cedar decline, I was like, oh, those can cause tree mortality if there's a couple of in, in large patches, and I didn't know. I mean, I guess I don't know how easy it would be. They're so infrequent that you get these outbreaks that, that are long enough to actually kill a substantial number of trees. But I suppose that that would be another place that one could look for, you know, the death of trees. It could be, yeah. The sawfly outbreak, I've, again, talking to the entomologists, is I've done the same thing because it's a very interesting thing and she knows what she's talking about. I've been talking to Liz Graham and Juno. The the last big one was in the, the 60s. It was a long time ago. And typically these these pathogens or these pests, I should say, which are really widely distributed on the West Coast, they don't kill the trees typically. These just happen to be some really gnarly outbreaks and then you're getting two pests back to back. So there's the potential for a bit more. You know, it'd be a surprise if it was really, really extensive in terms of the mortality. You'd expect a few more trees than normal to knock off because of the back to back issues. But a large enough patch to precipitate a landslide, it's possible. It would be interesting to see. We just don't have a lot to compare it to. Yeah, yeah. I suppose it would be – I mean, I think the Forest Service is probably mapping mortality at least in uh, broad scales. And then then I guess in the the next – because it takes a few years for the – I remember hearing this uh, from – I think it was Dennis Landwer who was mm. talking about when I spoke with him about the landslides and yeah. clear cuts, I think, because right. it's like, it's a few years for the, the, you know, first it's the fine roots and then, yep. you yeah. know. It takes five to 10 years for the lands, for the instability to sort of peak as it were mm-hmm. after a bunch of mortality um, because those roots have to decay a bit and start to fall apart. So it takes a, a five, 10 years after the event for things to start to destabilize and, but, and then you go another 10 or 20 years after that, and you've got regrowth that's restabilizing the hillside. So there's a fairly, you know, I won't say short, but there's a window there yeah. for instability associated with things like clear cuts. And obviously clear cuts are the biggest deal because they kill every, everything yeah. um, all at once. But these other things are you know, mortality causing, so they would be on that spectrum somewhere. Yeah, and I mean, clearly, I guess it's not like those are required for for, no. <laughs> for landslides, yeah. Uh, yeah. as as it, as it is. But the so the um, yeah the the scale landslides and and your interest has not necessarily been so much in if I'm understanding correctly, it's not been so much in like predicting of them or uh, as much as it is looking at sort of their effect on forest ecology over the long run. 
Yeah, I'm an ecologist, so I leave that really hard job to other people. Right, yeah. <laughs> My interest in landslides is is where they are, so there is definitely some sense of where they start, where they go, how far they run out, because I'm mostly looking at what they do mm-hmm. to an ecosystem. So I have done some work modeling where they start and then worked with geologists to predict how far they go. And one cool thing that came out of that was um, – just a finding of how steep a slope landslides actually stop on around Mm. here, which was a surprise um, and seems to be fairly unique to this area and presumably down through the Northwest, but compared to other places in the world, um, you get a landslide starting here. It can actually stop on a fairly steep slope and then presumably maybe remobilize later, but it can certainly stop on a steep slope here. And we think that's just because the trees are so big. They're actually interacting with the other trees around them, you know, on either side of the scar. Um, I was just down at the slide on, well, I was up at Stargavin slide yesterday and then down at the one on, uh, at Silver Bay this mm-hmm. morning. And it's pretty stunning how much wood is still kind of hooked up in corners uh, and on the edges of things. Um, and that seems to slow stuff down. Obviously, the Stargavin one was huge and, and went all the way to the creek. But Yeah, I mean, there's a giant pile of wood there, but but it was interesting. Even immediately in the aftermath, how much, like there was these berms on the side yeah. that were just stacked with mud and um, mud and wood. I yeah. Mean, trees, yeah. big it's, trees in there. Yeah, so my interest is is thinking about that. My interest in landslides is thinking about landslides as a ecological phenomenon that influences what forests look like you know, where, you know, like what species are there, how much carbon is there, how fast they grow, stuff like that. Because around here, the only two major disturbances we've had for thousands of years are are wind and landslides, um, as far as we know. You know, there isn't any evidence of major pest outbreaks that actually kill stuff like, like the spruce bark beetle theoretically could, but we don't really have good evidence of that doing anything big. There's no real evidence of fire, you know, north of Prince of Wales. And even down there, it's exceedingly rare and not for thousands of years. So it's really those two things. So, you know, looking at the role of landslides in um, landscape composition is really interesting because it's it's something you can imagine happening for thousands and thousands of years. And it's a steep landscape. So, you know, there are places around here that have been hit by landslides over and over again, many places probably. And, and, so it's kind of a fun question, you know, do those places look different, mm. you know, than places that don't? Because if you just go a little bit away from the bottom of a hill, you've got the same everything, except you don't have landslides. Yeah. And so it's kind of an interesting thing. And and as the frequency of landslides ramps up, you know, knowing with, um, which is a, a common prediction from climate models, I should say, the frequency of landslide ramping up because the frequency of extreme precipitation events may also ramp up, you know, so you get more more rain, you'd expect, more intense rain anyway, you'd expect uh, more landslides to occur. Um, you know, what they do to an ecosystem is pretty important. Yeah, I suppose it's interesting to think about the sort of the recurrence interval, I guess, of mm-hmm. landslide on a given, and, and different slopes would have, like in my mind, it's all coming down at some point. It's yeah, just a matter much. of like yeah. when, uh, and it might be a long time. Uh, or might be, you know, within the next couple of years uh, is hard to say. But then to think about what it means to, because looking at some of the, like Stargavin, for example, the upper, the upper, the slope there, like the bottom land is starting to fill. And of course, that's not where the landslide's going to initiate. Right. Um, yeah. And then you have the kind of the toe of there. And then you look up and it's, it's like it went down to rock. rock right. Yeah. yeah. And so it's going to be a while it's before be a while. the 
the moss grows and then the alders and the and stuff that gets one's in there. so wide right i mean that was a that was a monster slide yeah, you know yeah. the more narrow sort of typical if dare i say it typical slides for southeast are narrower um you know more like the kramer slide or the mm-hmm. or the silver bay one um and presumably they'll fill in a little bit faster as stuff sort of comes in from the sides and, and dirt sort of slides, you know, fills, fills in the trough from the slide and grows over. Um, but a re- nailing down a return interval is really, really challenging. And I'm not, yeah, I don't think anybody's would ever be comfortable nailing one down for any slope at this stage of our knowledge. It's just a hard thing to do. And people do try to do it. You know, you can go and you can core trees and see how long it's been since a tree established in a slide path. And I've done that. I lived on a slide path in Juneau, um, you know, and it, it had been about 50, <laughs> about 70 years from the slide. And I, but, but you know that and you're like, well, I, I don't know if that's reassuring or not. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I mean, if you go up to a steep enough slope, Obviously, they're sliding. You know, you can get so steep that nothing will grow, and it everything just falls right off. So that's trivial. You know, it's it's so steep it slides every year. Say, it's the ones that don't slide very often that are the worry because they look stable until they're not. Right. Well, and that's what I remember speaking with Dennis, and he was talking about like this slope might be quite stable as long as it has its piping essentially it's water mm-hmm. piping moving through and as long as that's all right as long as it's draining well yeah. yeah and and that was one of the things that the star gavin slide going up there shortly after and looking on the the other the opposite slope you know where it had kind of gone up a little bit and and cleaned out stuff and then and then gone down but you could see all these places where the water was just coming out from from below the surface right. and, and because that had just been cleaned out and, and cut clearly like before it would have just run down and presumably trickled into the stream, I would have had no idea it was there mm-hmm. unless maybe I dug a pit or something like that. Mm-hmm. But it was an interesting sort of window into the the amount of water. And this was, you know, even on dry dry weather conditions, there's, there's this water, water moving out. down. Like, where is that all coming from? But uh, I guess it's just a big big sponge. But then when those get blocked up and changed and something, then it starts to saturate the soil in different ways. And mm-hmm. and then you know even just a little bit of disturbance can start to loosen yeah. it. And then yeah, any bit of wiggling, you know, earthquakes can trigger big landslide events or shaking of the trees in a big windstorm can start plugging those things up. I mean, and around Sika has a unique challenge with slides, which is that ash layer, the mm-hmm. come ash layer. This fairly fairly uh, impermeable you know water won't trickle through it all that well um layer under the soil around here and, and it is pretty common and it, it's or it's common to see those sorts of um drainage systems those those little pipes you know coming out emerging right above the ash layer uh, on the road cuts and trail cuts and stuff you can often recognize them pretty well by st- iron staining around them. oh they're right orange yeah yeah they're kind of orange they'll stand out yeah, that was. It's something I've tried to keep an eye out for just now because of my own curiosity and and been interested in it. And and so like in the narrow ones, like you were mentioning the the Kramer Avenue one, I was just n- noticing that one, the one that's closest to Harbor Mountain Road, and and there's actually a stream going down through the mm-hmm. middle of it now, kind of a cascade. And I I doubt that there there may have been a little bit of one before, but probably not as obvious as it seems to be right now. So as I was thinking about that, it doesn't seem like it's mostly bedrock. I mean, the stream is probably going through bedrock, but it seems like there's a lot of stuff in there. And I imagine the alders will start coming in pretty quickly. I was amazed. I hadn't been here in a couple of years because of COVID. And I was amazed how much stuff has grown over just yeah. in two years. Uh, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. But yeah, it's true. The The slide that hit Silver Bay 
and that was also 2015 was um it was rushing today in the in the um in the rainstorm i mean it was pumping water down and i'd be real real curious what that place looked like before that slide because mm. i can't imagine there was a big stream going down then the stream went I, all that water was going somewhere. Right. I don't know how much is now channeled into that slide and how much was actually going through before just underground. I don't know. Yeah, that's kind of, it's interesting to think about. And then, and then to think about how long it takes to build up enough stuff to actually, I mean, to have anything more than just kind of a trivial little couple trees fall kind of thing. Yeah, it's hard, it's hard to know. I, you can go, there are places where there have been some um, slides in the historical record that I'm aware of that you can go on and now they're well forested and, and clearly starting to fill in. Um, the ones I'm aware of are in downtown Juneau, the ones that actually killed some folks in the thirties and pushed some houses around in the thirties and, and the roads actually routed through some of those. And so it, it bends a little bit with the contour of the slide and uh, it's filling in with soil and it's got some trees growing on it now. And so that's a, what, 90 year ish, um, I don't recall the exact year, so let's just say upper 80s, 90-year-ish time interval to fill in. Um, and so, you know, how long is it going to be before it builds up enough mass that if it got going, it would keep going? Hard to say, but it's it's on its way, you know. And, and there has been some studies of the colluvial fans, the fans of material deposited at the bottom of some of those hills, and and they do slide over and over again. So there is a return interval as it were mm-hmm. um, but dating those things precise the the bigger thing is not necessarily knowing what the return you know what the average is but how variable it can be because right. that's yeah. far more yeah scary but far more important too um, yeah. is just knowing how unpredictable some of these slopes are yeah yeah and it is interesting so i mean i noticed just looking at gavin hill and when the light is Nice, nicer than it is today. Uh, <laughs> um, and you can see these strips of, of spruce, for example. And I've wondered, is that where an old slide was? Or is that just happened to be where the kind of the ravine is and the spruce is, is more competitive in those, those, those hyper well-drained mm-hmm. places? And I mean, I guess it could be either without going and actually looking at those places. Yeah, it presumably could be either. I mean, eventually spruce is typically taken over by hemlock if it's mm-hmm. stable. So probably something happened there. Um, but, you know, without, you're right, without looking, it's hard to know. But um, it's a pretty safe assumption that most anything that gets above 30 degrees or so at the top is probably slid at some point or yeah. another in these V-notches. And obviously the alder ones are easier to pick out. Mm-hmm. But yeah. um, another thing that you can do is just walk along the base of um, the Harbor Mountain or, or Gavin or any of these things. And if you walk that that uh, transition between the hill slope and the flatland, it's becomes real obvious real fast that you're walking over you're just walking up and down you're walking over deposits from landslides mm. and it's it's pretty apparent because you keep climbing these little hills and and seeing piles of rock come out underneath you and then you'll go down the other side and there'll be a gully above you and then you'll hit another one and you'll go up and it, it's pretty it, it surprised me how common they were when i was hiking along the base of those things in the indian river valley um I expect, obviously, you know you're going to find them, but it was amazing how, it surprised me how just clear it was when you get off trail and you get into those places where they deposit, just how frequently they deposit. We had several places in this study that we just wrapped up looking at the carbon implications, but also looking at 
slides and where they stopped. Like, for example, the, the one where we, we built a better model to model landslide movements through these forests specifically. Um, so that, that's, that study's right, uh, um, uh, had us out there sampling trees in these areas. And we dug several soil pits where we would dig down, and soil has very distinct horizons in it, like calm horizons. They're essentially layers, like a layer cake. Um, so a dark layer at the top, and then there's often this sort of bleached white layer. Um, it's called the E-horizon, but it's just a white line, basically, and there's more dark material before. And then you get into rock. And we had several pits where we dig down, and we see all those layers all, all well and good, and then we hit those layers again. Mm. <laughs> like the exact same thing, just repeated three feet down. And... You know, the, and, and this is at the bottom of a landslide uh, path, and many, which didn't look like a landslide path. Like, it's all spruce and hemlock down there. It's, it's giant, giant spruce. The spruce love growing on these landslide deposits. Uh, and so the, the simplest explanation for that is there has been landslides that just buried the land with more soil, and you're just getting sort of layer cake on top of layer cake. Do you make a distinction between so like for example up indian river a few years ago i think it's 20 2015 uh, but maybe a different different event than oh, well it might have been the same one but i was up there i was up indian river well up uh you know the left side of the valley yeah. and i came was out in the forest and came across like all of this raw rock i mean right. just like oh, <laughs> just, uh, you know i don't know how much it was but it was a big area and there was no apparent you know no stream by but it's just like probably a foot or two deep mm-hmm. a thick of just raw rock you know mm-hmm. like somebody had just spread out a dump trucks load or three <laughs> or four of rock and you follow that up and there's a stream uh, and and in the high water, presumably something had happened that diverted that, and it had there was this big pit that I guess had just been hollowed out, and all that rock had been and it, oh, wow. and it's like I'm cool. trying to think how much water was moving because yeah. these were not like small rocks; they were, you know, fist. Some of them were fist size and larger, mm-hmm. so that takes I would think a fair amount of water, and there was yeah. no mud associated with it, so it was just it or was presumably off, yeah. yeah, it could have washed yeah. off, I suppose. Um, but it was, uh, yeah, these places where there are, are regularly water flowing down, but then in high water events, like it can cause, ma- you know, significant mm-hmm. erosion in rock, but it's not really a landslide per se. It's, right. it's, and there's a place along Gavin Hill where it's a similar, like it's coming through a goalie, but just a big fan of, of rock came, came, right. you know, washing down, it's scouring the sides and, and anything that's sort of, I guess, weathered over the years and mm-hmm. now is, is loose gets pulled free and, and presumably others gets knocked free. Sometimes there's some trees that come down that were, had right. been growing there. But, but generally speaking, the four, it, it doesn't make a big scar. It just is, if you're there, you, you see the effects of it. It washed out part of Gavin Trail in this case. Mm-hmm. Probably the, I don't know if it was the same event or not, but a similar sort of thing happened where you just end up with this big rock pile. And, and I guess I'm curious if you were looking at those and then the landslides where it's like there's a lot of organic material and a lot of stuff that's yeah. piling and accumulating at the bottom. Uh, do you look at both of those or primarily one or the other? We've been primarily looking at the landslides, the mm-hmm. debris. They're, they're, not, they're more technically debris avalanches and debris flows. I mean, um, so we're looking at, at organic material like soil that mm-hmm. has been typically um, – behaves kind of like a, like a liquid, like it, it starts to slide and just gets all churned up and, right. and ends up just flowing down the hill. Those more, um, just high erosion events or, you know, uh, called gully washers right yeah. <laughs> in the Southwest. Uh, yeah, that, that we didn't get into that too much, uh, or at all really. Um, also real interesting. And that's another one of those things where, 
it'd be wonderful to know the frequency of that because that could tell you a lot about how often he, you know these big rain events can move that much material. Uh, yeah, and some of those are not well connected to the mainstream. You know, they're mm, just they little, sort of little ones coming yeah. in, and then yeah, you just end up with this pile of rock. That I mean, there's clearly a lot of rock moving down the stream too. It's it's sort of impressive to me how much the gravel bars can change after a mm. after an event like this. Cool. You know, yeah. and and Indian River itself, where they when they replace the bridge. Um, mm-hmm. going through the park and they dug down they like dug down 10 or 15 feet and it was just all river gravel all the way gravel, down yeah. yeah it was amazing how how deep that gravel was there and it's like yeah it, there's just so much water moving through this landscape all the time yeah anytime it, you get enough to move something it must be a lot because otherwise it would have moved earlier last time it rained three right <laughs> right yeah yeah it is it's uh it's one of those things i've been trying to pay a little more attention to even just on the small scale of like gravel bars forming and then and then being stable for there's one one just below the road bridge that used to be a gravel bar well actually when i was really young i don't remember there being one then i i kind of have this vague memory that a gravel bar was there it got trees willows got established mm-hmm. on it and it was there for Stabilized probably at least itself. 20 20 years mm-hmm. or so and then over the last 15 years like it started to wash out, and then and then over the last you know maybe five, just the last little bits of the willow, uh, <laughs> the willow that were left guess. from there, and now it's now it's uh, and and at that point it was just kind of the roots and stuff that were still hanging in there, and now it's gone. There's like there's no no gravel bar there at all, and it's just you know it's all within a relatively narrow channel right yeah. there. Um, Do you wonder maybe something happened upstream that changed right. how water was hitting the bar? Yeah, you yeah. just yeah yeah, and it could be. And of course, they did they did replace the the bridge there at some point in the last, right. and that yeah, could have true. changed some things yeah. as well. But but yeah, you know, trees falling down or just something random about that particular event mm-hmm. and the way that the gravel builds up in one place and gets scoured out in another. It is interesting interesting uh, questions around some of that stuff, and and I guess hard to answer some of them are are looking deep into the past but even just in the present you know so much stuff is is moving these these uh you know the dynamics and and it's easy to feel like because a lot of this stuff you know it's punctuated i guess there there's these these mostly the stream just seems to run like it runs and i'm sure there's some stuff sediment moving down but the the big events have right. disproportionate yeah. effects you know yeah. and then in the forest it's, it's similar except for even on a longer scale where it's like these trees are really old. Obviously, they, right. they they've, they've been, been there a while, while and they're yeah. pretty stable. And so it's easy to start kind of thinking in in human lifespan terms. But then, you know, just even expanding out to a few hundred years, let alone a few thousand years. I mean, and even beyond that, I suppose, like in some areas of Southeast, even within the last few thousand, Little Ice Age was a significant uh, oh, impact. Sure. In, yeah. And I don't know how much, you know, there's a, a geologist that has been visiting. I don't know if you've ever met uh, Jason Briner, but he's been, um, he's interested in post-glacial landscape, essentially, mm-hmm. and kind of when do the glaciers leave and, and kind of what is that. And something he pointed out is he's like, he said, you know, people think, oh, the glaciers came and they left. And he said, but actually it was these pulses, kind of you know, coming around, and going yeah. and, and the average, you know, is probably far, far further, far more ice than, than we have right now. Um, but it, you know, things are coming and going. And so, you know, on the scale of hundreds and thousands of years, you know, probably in some areas, Juno being in particular in Glacier Bay, obviously yeah. being one where, where the, probably much less so on Sitka, except at higher elevations, um, where that's also having an effect on kind of the, the landscape ecology and the changes and the way that it's looking. Yeah, for sure. I do a lot of work in Glacier Bay. I spend a lot of time there every summer and, 
it's pretty striking. You know, it's it's not that far away, and it's it's a very different place. I mean, the, the species is the same. It's not like you think you were in Tahiti or something, but it's clearly younger. You know, you go there, and especially you go to um, some of the places where I work in the back, the soil's three inches deep at most, you know, or less. And then it's just gravel, and it's, you know, there's no... There's none of that layering that you find in the soils around here. It's just sort of roots and half decomposed leaves all the way to gravel. <laughs> yeah. And it's just a very, it's just a much, much, yeah, much younger forest. Um, whereas around here, you can certainly find places that probably haven't had any sort of major change since the last time the ice was here. You know, areas that are well protected from the wind and are far from a landslide slope probably haven't seen much action at all <laughs> yeah because uh, it's and, and that's always that's actually what got me into the field i'm in which is really disturbance ecology and sort of these sorts of natural disasters is i mean i i love forests i grew up in the northwest and in um bellingham and grew up sort of wandering in the woods and and i, I mean i love hanging out in forests but you know they're they're kind of they don't do a lot right <laughs> Up up until it happens, you know, they don't, there's not too many forests. There are some, but there's not too many forests that gradually change. They, they, they do their thing until there's something that's big and typically, ex, not always, but typically external that happens like a fire or a windstorm. And that's when you get all the action of reorganization of the community and the potential for dramatic change. You know, if, if there isn't a landslide or a windstorm, you know, it'll probably be the same thing, you know, 10 years, you know, in the past and 10 years in the future, you know, but once you have that big fire or you have a big landslide or something, that's when the community can change. That's when the resources are available for new species to come in. And, and in the context of climate change, it's, it's a potential opportunity, really. It's, it's a, it's a chance for more climate adapted species to establish for a community, which can deal with the slightly warmer temperatures we have now, um, with the slightly warmer winters we have now. It's, it's really a chance for adaptation, um, that you don't get until you sort of wipe the slate clean or partially clean. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and we've seen that, um, for example, uh, um, well, a really good example is is lodgepole pine. So same species as shore pine here. Um, it's still migrating north after the last ice age. Uh, it's in the Yukon. It appears to be moving north with every fire. Mm. And so it's not at its northern limit right now. It's still getting there. It just can't do it until there's a fire that kills the stuff that was there first. Hmm. And so that could be happening more often than we think. It, like yellow cedar decline, for example... Um, you know, is obviously killing yellow cedar trees and Western red cedar is in the process of migrating North kind of at the same time. And, and so the Northern edge of Western red cedar is in cake. Um, well, it's sort of that, that latitude goes across through Petersburg and stuff. And, um, and we have some stands, we have some study plots and areas where the yellow cedars died and the yellow and the red cedars moving in. And you can see that at higher elevations on Prince of Wales too. Hmm. It's pretty neat. It's it's a sign that, um, you know, it won't be the same forest in the future, but it is a sign of a warmer, adapted species moving in. Um, you know, so there's sort of a the unfortunateness of a of a major disturbance or a, a killing event, as it were. But there's also the the plus side of having a new community established that might be better off, um, given what we expect the future climate to be like. 
Yeah, so these are sort of regenerative events in the in the big in the picture. big scheme of things. Yeah. yeah, they're they're opportunities for adaptation. Yeah, yeah, ecologically yeah. speaking, community speaking too. You know, they, they do give people a chance to sort of rethink how they deal with the natural environment. You know, they're they're rarer up here, but you can see that a lot in down south uh, with fires and whole towns burning down and sort of rethinking how they build. Mm-hmm. back um and there's a lot of communities that do that. there's a lot of communities that choose not to you know they choose to just do the exact same thing over again um but there are many communities that choose to build back in a different way that's a bit more uh adaptive to a future with more disturbances or 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 different types of disturbances or what have you yeah and i suppose when you're inheriting a uh infrastructure community infrastructure you, you know you're sort of stuck with the, yeah. the values that created that yeah, and exactly and you yeah, can yeah. you have an opportunity when there's a, a bit yeah of a and it's nobody's there. fault you right. know no, no one's expected to revamp what was done 50 years ago in the absence of right, <laughs> you know right. it's a and it's a hard thing to do but um but they are sort of milestone events that require some action yeah and, and so that action can be uh, adaptive yeah yeah, it's interesting to look. I mean, I suppose the the sixty four quake and tsunami, uh, you know, was was that for some coastal communities? Yeah, well, given I'm sure. The impact yeah, that, that had certainly tsunamis. You know, you can yeah. think about uh, earthquakes are hard to predict. You know, not you know may or may not change, but certainly the tsunamis are like. Well, maybe we should think about evacuation routes and right, yeah, and things of that nature. Yeah, it is interesting to to consider it from from that perspective, and and yeah, the things that are moving north and probably have been, you know, over oh, yeah. just yeah, it's yeah. it's For a slow sure. process. The one the one thing I'm curious, I don't know, maybe if you've looked at it or not, is is my understanding is for a while at least it was an open question, and I don't know if it's been settled yet. Now is is the the one the one sort of slow change that might happen in places being transitioned from to or from Muskeg. Mm, and yeah. <laughs> and that and that here in this region it, it can kind of be i suppose in a in a you know one thing that could drive it is is longer term sort of century scale differences in precipitation where where perhaps the the muskegs in in a higher precipitation regime i'm i'm guessing w- would tend to expand a little bit and in a lower precipitation might might shrink um, but I don't know if there's been any kind of look at that I don't think that that's done. been settled yet. I think you talk to certain people, they'll say it's settled one way or the other, but I I'm see. not sure that's yeah. real been settled yet. Yeah, that's a hard one. We, You know, the, the idea of sphagnum invasion in forests is an interesting one. Certainly you can see places where sphagnum bogs, um, some musk eggs are expanding. You can see sphagnum sort of reaching its little tendrils into the forest. Um, I mean, I can think of a few uh, on some islands but around here, but... There's other places where, you know, you can see the sort of stuff pulling back, you know, and, and sort of establishment on the edge. And, and the vast majority are probably caused by bedrock hollows and places where water collects anyway. Um, and there's certainly – this is actually something I'm interested in following. It, it won't be answered in my lifetime, but <laughs> some of our plots in Glacier Bay, we know exactly how old they are. And, uh, you know, we know the whole history of them. The whole history of them. And there is uh, – Sphagnum, little spots of sphagnum in some of these areas. And so we'll have to see if those expand mm-hmm. um, and start building up. You know, it's certainly wet enough in some of those those places for the stuff to continue to sort of drown everything out. I mean, the, the, the mechanism or the idea is that they'll essentially soak up enough water to waterlog everything and, and start killing stuff, which will only give them more opportunity to expand. And but yeah, I don't think it's necessarily settled yet, although certainly there are strong opinions floating around. 
I see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I could imagine scenarios where, I mean, it, it just depends, right? It could, either one could happen sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. And, and even, even it, you know, like a, a, a potential s- scenario where a landslide comes in and it cuts, cuts through and creates better drainage from a right. muskeg, for example. Right. And then, and then it's. And we found in our study um, of the forest around here that we definitely had higher productivity for us. So bigger trees, basically on areas that were hit by landslides more often. Mm-hmm. Um, the, we, what we did was we set up a whole bunch of um, paired plots, meaning we had two places where we measured biomass, one in a, in a landslide depositional area, um, and one as close as we could that wasn't hit by landslides uh, ever as near as far and as best as we could tell using, some, using the model we developed for Sika. So these plots were only 100 feet away, you know, a hundred yards away, probably. Um, and, uh, they had the same slope, they had the same everything. And, and on average, the, the forests in the landslide depositional zones were definitely more productive on average, but the variability was extremely high. So it's, there's a lot going on. Basically it probably is a thing. The question is how, you know, how significant is it? Um, it, it seems to be pretty significant on average, but at any given point, the variability is extremely high. Do do you know or do we have a sense of what sort of limits, I mean, like w- what it is that, that drives the, the trees that are super happy versus the, yeah. <laughs> versus the small trees? Like- well, that's kind of what we were trying to get at. Yeah, the, the, the best studies we've done around here looking at that um, – often use things like LIDAR, uh, which is uh, a remote sensing technique, an airplane-driven technique in this case, where you shoot a bunch of lasers from an airplane. Sounds sounds really cool, um, and it is pretty cool. You shoot a bunch of airplane uh, lasers from an airplane, which gives you this whole host of reflectance values. So it'll give you what we call a point cloud in a given spot. So there'll be points where the laser makes it all the way to the ground and bounces back. And then sometimes they'll hit a tree and bounce back the top of a tree and sometimes the middle of a tree. And using that cloud of points, we can actually build really detailed maps of how dense the forest is. And so that's been done and analyzed for um, like what is associated with, with high biomass, um, like big forests basically. And it seems to be um, a couple things seem to be the dominant dominant drivers, one of which is slope. So steeper slopes tend to have bigger forests. And then um, forests right along rivers, like in riparian zones. And so we interpret that as probably just a function of drainage, areas where you don't have too much water. So there's you know. plenty of nutrients. It's just that they yeah, to get water there's plenty of, And there's yeah. plenty of water. It's more a water problem than yeah. anything else. So uh, you know, along a river, you have a lot of water, but you also have that gravelly soil, so it drains mm-hmm. pretty well. And and tree roots need need air too. You know they they can't just be in waterlogged soil and and slopes. You know the water will will run off. So there seems to be a um, a correlation there. And and, uh, and that that holds up if you use um, plots distributed all over southeast. Mm. It seems to be primarily a slope issue as the biggest driver. Um, Everything, there are other things that matter, things like, like landslides, you know, which, right. w- which we think in this case is altering um, how much biomass you have in a given spot by changing the soil and making it better drained by putting a bunch of crap at the bottom of the hill, you know, a bunch of rocks and things, uh, mixing it up. Um, but that seems to be operating at a pretty small, small scale compared mm-hmm. to just slope, you know. 
Yeah, I was able to speak with Richard Carsonson earlier this year, and one of the things that yeah. he mentioned, of course, he'd done his big tree, you know, landmark yeah, tree. Yeah, he's thing. got a great map of, yeah. of his heritage or his heritage tree, well, special trees. One of the things that he was mentioning that he he felt that he'd overlooked in the past was these slopes. Uh, mm. In particular, I think he said it was above the just above the trim line of of Mendenhall mm-hmm. Glacier. There's some there's some, some large trees, trees there, yeah. in there that that lidar was pointing out. Right. He, he says he felt a little remiss because he didn't even consider looking right. there, you know, for these big trees but big tall trees yeah you think it's you think it's just along the rivers i think most people might say that and and they are big there and and that's probably a function of these nice deep gravelly soils so they're really well drained but but yeah around here it just rains so much that the slopes don't ever really dry out so these trees aren't struggling you know if you go down south that's not the case you know you get slopes they tend to dry out faster because water runs off but (laughs) As today shows, you know, water's yeah. rarely yeah. a problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, that has been fascinating to me. I, I wonder, and maybe I need to talk to hydrologists. I was like, we had we had weather a couple of years ago, 2019, when we had um, a summer. We had our longest stretch without rain at the airport, mm-hmm. or tied for it. I think it was 27 days or something like that, and it was it was actually quite warm. I think Juneau was unpleasantly. Yeah, they were crispy. Warm they had and, some beach fires that got away. And, um, yeah. yeah, smoky and and stuff and. But you could still go out, and and the streams that have no snow or anything, there's like, and there, there's still plenty of water, water coming down yeah. the hill, and it's like, how, what, how, where's that? Like, how is that? How is it coming out in such a measured fashion? And and so I'm curious about the dynamics of, of the water and where it is, and mm-hmm. and how it can continue. Like when it continues to have water falling from the sky, then that makes more sense. But when you look up and you know that the mountain doesn't have any snow on it left, and and there's no, like, muskeg maybe would slowly be dry, well, but it's not They like- do, and so muskegs do are, do function as sort of water batteries, you mm. know, um, in the sense that when everything else starts slowing down, they have some water in them. And it's pretty amazing how much water soil can hold yeah. uh, when it gets down to it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it is. It's one of those things. I guess the Southeast Alaska is both made to shed water like crazy, and yeah. uh, and uh, and holds it for a while pretty well too. It seems. Yeah, I think if there's anything in the way of drainage, it would be gone by now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. I've had plenty of opportunity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Um, well, yeah, I mean, and then these landslides and rock falls, I guess, both uh, can create sort of these interesting. Uh, uh, blockages that then mm-hmm. then shift shift some things in places yeah they certainly it was interesting walking up the stargavin slide yesterday um right before the rain so we were able to just walk up the creek um and try to guess if those stream channels had stabilized yet um, right they changed a lot between last year and this year Did they? yeah yeah I so right now as you're walking cause... up the, the channels on the right side mm-hmm. it used that's where you walked up was on the right side it's much easier now you have to cross the stream a couple times yeah, yeah. a couple times yeah. to, to get up there but it was running more in the middle and when i when i went up there the first time this year and i saw it, i was like whoa and then and then it had downcut so much where it is now relative to where it had been like mm-hmm. you look over there it's like how is it ever running over there <laughs> but um but obviously i mean it was that's that's how it was i, I saw it there and right. that's how it was for i mean some years it was just cuz i was up there last year and mm-hmm. that's where it was so some some one of the water events this past winter bumped presumably and- yeah bumped it over and i'm always curious about that even looking at at the you know the mouth of indian river at totem park and you can mm-hmm. kind of see these old mostly dewatered channels but i went out and looked there today and there's water flowing down them mm-hmm. and because the water's high enough in coming out of the river and it's like i guess what happens is some event like this the tide's just right or something at that at you know at the estuary uh, site 
that or a tree comes down and just shunts water a little ways and then it erodes this deeper channel and then suddenly you have a major right. channel jump right uh and and i guess that probably happens from time yeah to time. it's it certainly happens and that's actually something i don't know if anybody's ever done it but it, it'd be interesting to look into um there's a guy actually with the with washington state government i want to say dnr but i could be wrong um, who uses LIDAR to map old stream channels mm. and just makes beautiful artwork out of it. Uh, um, last name's Co. And uh, I can I can get the name and link to you, but it's given that there's good LIDAR here in Sitka, someone could do that for Indian River. And it's the, it makes the most beautiful, beautiful maps because the LIDAR will pick up on just very subtle differences in elevation. And so you can see old stream channels um, really, really clearly along a floodplain just amazingly well um people have done this around the around the country there's a this classic maps from the 30s or from the 40s by um, a guy named fisk on the mississippi where he mapped old old Mm. stream channels and just made just beautiful they're just charts but they're so beautifully done or maps but they're so beautifully done that they're essentially wall art and uh now people are doing it with lidar and it'd be a fun thing to Hmm. to see if um someone wanted to generate one for the indian river yeah, I know some yeah. folks that like to play with GIS stuff, so yeah. they're probably the ones yeah. to talk to. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a couple places I can think of where, uh, like up Indian River, there's a place where a waterfall comes down, and then and then it turns, makes a sharp, you know, if you're facing downstream, it makes a sharp right turn and it goes along the toe of the slope before, mm. and quite a ways down, and then cuts across to uh, to the main channel. Um, but if you go there, it looks like at some point in the past, it actually just more directly went. Right. Uh, and that something built up, you know, whether it was a, a debris flow kind of event in a you know, mm-hmm. heavy rainfall or, or a tree fell or whatever. Or just sediment that yeah. sort of built up at a slow spot. In the and, then, yeah. and then it, it, that shunted it off to the right instead of that more direct route. And, and again, this is one of those things where it's easy to, if you don't happen to be there and see the change happen, it's just easy to imagine, well, it's always been this way. Um, why, right. why would it have changed? Yeah. It looks the same. Uh, but in reality, somewhere on the forest, these sorts of things are happening all the time. And, and in any particular spot, it, you know, maybe decades or hundreds of years mm-hmm. even between these kind of major shift, major shifts. And then, and I mean, and you look at where the, the Indian River is cut down and you see that it's just all river sediment there that it's cut right. down through. <laughs> so, so I'm like, huh, well, that, that mean, it must mean that it's moving around a lot. It wasn't a, a river and then it was a river and then yeah. it is a river again. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then and then in places where it's bedrock controlled, and you're like, okay, right. well, that's yeah, got to be pretty sure. stable. But um, but yeah, these other kind of floodplain things just makes me makes me wonder how much over the lifetime of the river, how much vari- variability mm. there's been in its, its stream path. Yeah, all these all these things are. It's just a fundamental problem of scale. I think that we all have challenges with. I actually have a book coming out in the winter here. Um, primarily maps, and then some writing about climate change. But the big theme is how hard it is to perceive change mm. um, uh, because of scale, you know, uh, either temporal or spatial. So um, time scales um, that surpass, you know, 50 years are essentially impossible for us to, <laughs> to right. visualize in any sort of good way. And, and spatial scales more than say, you know, 10 or 20 miles are hard to perceive. We just can't necessarily see that far. And, and we can now, you know, with satellites and maps and things. And, and so that technology has really um, 
highlighted, you know, the scale of impacts we're having on the world. But for most people, if you're not looking at that actively, it's just, it's just darn hard and, and it's forgivably hard, right? We're just yeah. not built for that. Right. Right. And so it's, it's a fun and fun challenge to try and really recalibrate thought processes to match the scale of the phenomenon you're trying to think about. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so if you're thinking about a forest around here, you can't be thinking about 50 years or 30 years or 100 years. You have to be thinking on thousand-year timescales, which is a hard thing to right. do. <laughs> well, and that's one of the things I've really been interested in just kind of on that scale, even, you know, since the last Ice Age sort of thing, sort so say peak Ice Age or and beyond if you could go. But, but just like what would it look like if we just took – you know, Sitka Sound, where Sitka Town is in there, and just sort of, like, did as, you know, all the work that people have done to try and understand what's happened. And I guess there's, you know, some geological work. You could even go back in deeper time, although you wouldn't really know. You'd know where the rocks were coming from, but not mm-hmm. sort of the landform stuff. But, but like, what do our models suggest? And, and then you can animate this, you know, take the topography, and, and I guess you'd have to make some assumptions about how fast it's changing. And over that scale, it's probably not changing too much in the broad broad strokes right, right, right. um but it, but you know the ice you know how how far it came out retreated you know the four bulge all of these right. things sea level changing relatively the forest coming up and growing and and the sort of the the best guess timings of that i guess based on pollens and, and those sorts yeah, of things and yeah. and just then start to get a yeah it's basically a, a technology assist to try and imagine right. these things you know uh and see that but yeah, Google Earth making it much easier to sort of see see within a broader context than we used to used to be able to. And uh, but yeah, it's it's super hard. Even you know just the weather and and how many times folks uh, you know I myself have said, "Well, I've never seen that before." Right. <laughs> does that mean it never happened? Or yeah, does exactly. Mean, There's a big yeah, yeah. You have to be careful, right? That doesn't necessarily mean it's yeah the end of the world. It could just be something that well, yeah, doesn't the variability very often. is. But exactly. then on the other hand, it could be something new that yeah. Yeah, because like Google Earth will help us with space, but yeah, thinking over long periods of time, it does give you an appreciation for how much can change with just a little bit of warming or cooling, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, just thinking about how much, you know, ice movement around here, for example, corresponds to just kind of a little bit of regional cooling and warming, not actually that much. Like, yeah. Well, especially around Juno and Yeah, it's and a big Glacier deal. Yeah, yeah, all of a sudden it becomes a big deal if you right. degrees here or there. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's, it's, I always wonder about the shape of that. So, so like in Little Ice Age around Sitka, what was it actually like? What was a typical year? Was it more yeah, it like our it? 2012, which was right. kind of like it was cold, cold but and, and chilly, but it wasn't like, you know, you're like, oh man, this is kind of a bummer of a summer, but it's not like everything's mm. failed, right? Um, right. And is that is that all it takes, or, or you know, when it, it's hard when we talk about averages, what does that actually look like over the course of a year? You know, if it's one degree cooler or warmer on average, I don't know what that looks like, and right. and it, you know, because it's a function for in ice in particular, it's a function of how much snow is accumulated and how much melts. So a dry winter. Has just as much problems for snow accumulation as as a, a warm summer does. And what's a normal winter here? When I came back to live full time and was talking to some folks that grew up and were here in the 40s and 50s, either when they moved here as adults, mm-hmm. and so then the first few years sort of set their baseline, or if they grew up here, then it was kind of that teenage years time. Right. And that was what was normal for them. And for me, normal was very different. And and then of course every year was just variable you right know. yeah the variability here is huge but that that's totally true i mean that's what my my folks will say that that the the 50s were 
you know, much colder in the winters yeah. down yeah. In, in in northwest Washington, and and so they'll talk about that all the time, and and that's true. But there was there was warmer periods before that, right? You know, it, it just happened to be a very cold period. So their sort of experience intersected with some natural variability as well, and and so teasing apart the the um, signal of a global climate from ex- locally experienced climate is a really difficult thing to do and just can't be left to personal right. observations. It has to come from um, observations which match the scale of the problem, you know, which in our day means satellites or it means looking at, at weather records for 150 years or weather records from around the world. It's just you can't, you can't expect to see a global phenomenon from just inside your own head, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. You know, I mean, it's just, it's just the wrong scale to be looking at. And, um, you know, over a hundred years, maybe, you know, under 50 years, maybe, but you shouldn't necessarily expect to see that it's, it's a, it's a global problem. And, and so, yeah, we're just not really built for that. So it's a good thing we have, you know, science and technology to help. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting some of the, uh, you know, Jim Bachtel's work looking at the relative sea level here and what it would have been doing. I like how fast it would have been changing out here as the bulge collapsed, you Mm -hmm. know, and sea level was rising at the same time. And, uh, you you know, that would have been something that was super noticeable, like within, you know, feet of change within a single lifetime kind of thing of sea level, which would have been a little bit. I'm sure that was a little bit unsettling, uh, you know, to be here. Granted, the, the sorts of infrastructure that folks living here at the time had was much different than the right, sorts right, of infrastructure right. we have now. So, probably. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so it is, it is interesting. I think I'll look forward to, to seeing your book. You say that that's coming out in the winter sometime? Yeah, in the winter, exactly. Okay. Timber Press. Yeah. Nice. Well, so I know that um, you're doing some work with Yellow Cedar. We talked a little bit about it, but um, before we wrap up here, I'm just curious, is there, are there things that if – folks are out there and observing yellow cedar um, that, that you'd encourage, encourage them to keep an eye out for that might be helpful for what you're doing? Yeah, I'd have to say that um, this yellow cedar work I've been doing for a long time now um, has really, really benefited and really been made possible by community uh, members helping. Uh, it's just not a tree that's everywhere. And so, uh, you know, the f- when folks can make observations when they see it hunting or or whatever they're doing out in the woods, it's it's wonderful, and it's it's actually how we mapped the range edge of cedar and started marking its its migration into colder climes, which is not going very fast. <laughs> but it's how we were able to determine that was with folks who were operating and sort of living and working and playing north of the range edge, and then came across them here, there, or wherever, and, and told us, and we went out and found them and measured them. But one thing that we're looking for now is areas that have regeneration because yellow cedar is it's a pretty widespread tree. Obviously, it's been successful in the past, either living, you know, living here during the last ice age, like off on some refugia or or spreading. Um, obviously, it's been able to spread in the past and grow and regenerate. And we found patches in, in the Juno area and even there's one up near Haines, like many tens of miles from the nearest other tree. So somehow it's spreading fast. But then on the other hand, it doesn't seem to be spreading fast. Like it doesn't happen very often, you know. And so what we've noticed in the data sets we have, and this includes essentially every data set I could compile, is a big lack of um, regeneration. So a lot of times you'll find plenty of yellow cedar 
um, what we call germinants, basically cedar that are one or two years old. They're really small. They don't even look like cedar. They look kind of like a moss, like staghorn moss, staghorn moss or something. Um, and we'll see plenty of those, uh, especially in sunny areas because it's not super shade tolerant. But what we don't see are trees in the like knee height to head height age class. Um, and they, they exist in places, but very few uh, places. And we don't really know why. You know, there, there's a lot of potential competing hypotheses here. It could just be that they don't regenerate very often. And, and we're at a time where they are starting to regenerate quite a bit in areas. And, uh, you know, so 10 years from now, they'll be playing. I mean, that's possible, I suppose. It could be deer reading them. It could be they just don't. That something about the climate means they're not growing that fast, you know. It's just something that seems to be lacking in a lot of the data is where are the sort of teenage cedar, you know. Um, a lot of old ones, um, and by old I mean like 100 years old, you know, big, nice-looking trees, and and a decent number of little ones, um, but not a lot of the ones that are like knee-high to head height. And in places where we see a lot of um, regeneration, a lot like, for example, in Cake, where I've got a couple experiments going, a lot of time it'll sort of grow as a shrub, you know, it sort of grows as this like one foot tall, thick ground cover almost like it doesn't ever want to be a tree. And so we've got that too, but, but these sort of like slightly taller ones seem to be relatively few and far between. I mean, you can find them, but, but compared to say the hemlock, you know, that you'll see all over the place that are, that are head height or the spruce that are head height. You just don't see a lot of cedar that are head height. So if folks are out and about and they find places where it seems like um, cedar is regenerating uh, well and you've got sort of a young crop coming up naturally, it'd be wonderful to know where that is. Um, so we could start making a list of those too. Mm. Okay. Well, I appreciate you taking some time to, to visit with me here and, and folks can, uh, what's the best way if they, if they are finding these sorts of trees, uh, you know, the, the kind of teenage, teenage uh, yellow cedar <laughs> uh, growing, uh, what's the best way to, to get in touch or to let you know about them? Yeah, the best would just be to shoot me an email. Okay. It's, uh, it's my name, Brian.Buma, with a dot in between, Brian.Buma at UC and then Denver.edu, so All University right. of Colorado, Denver. All right, and um, yeah, I'll post a link to your to your uh, website um, with with this when it's on my on my webpage. But yeah, thanks for thanks for coming in. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to a conversation I recorded this past August with Brian Buma. If you'd like to learn more about his research program and work, you can visit his website brianbuma.com. Uh, find out about what his lab is doing. He is currently based at the University of Colorado. Denver, formerly at University of Alaska Southeast Juneau. And I want to thank him for taking some time out of his visit to speak with me. And thank you for joining me here on the Sitka Nature Show this week. As always, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there, especially in this migration season, this fall season. Feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. Until next time, this has been Matt on the Sitka Nature Show, KCAW Sitka.